0: My name is Janet, and I am the host of the Painting Stories podcast. Welcome to Episode One Snakes, Sex, and Status, my podcast guide to the must see artworks in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. I am an art historian, and I will tell you the stories about the top 10 paintings and the most important sculpture in this gallery. During this tour you will hear the stories of the most important painters of the Italian Renaissance and the Baroque periods. You will learn why they were and still are to this day considered geniuses. You will also hear some Greek myths and Bible stories and discover why these subjects were so popular during the Renaissance. You will also understand more about the Renaissance and the Baroque and in particular, what was important to the artists, commissioners and viewers of art during these periods. What you will learn whilst listening to the tour in front of the artworks will also help you to read and understand many of the other amazing paintings and sculptures in the Uffizi. The podcast is approximately one hour long, but on top of this, you will also need time to walk between the paintings and I suggest that you pause the podcast whilst you do this and begin it again when standing in front of the artwork. During the podcast, I refer to the hall so you can find each of the artworks in. I therefore highly recommend that you have a gallery floor plan with you to make finding the hall and therefore the artwork I'm speaking about easily. I hope you enjoy the podcast just as much as I have enjoyed making it. This tour starts on the second floor of the Uffizi Gallery in halls 10 to 14 where you will find the Botticelli paintings. Please pause the podcast now and restart when you are standing in front of the Birth of Venus by Botticelli. So I hope you are now standing in front of The Birth of Venus by Sandro Botticelli, painted in around 1485. Although this painting is called The Birth of Venus, it actually shows a second scene in her story when Venus, the goddess of love, emerges from the sea on a shell, landing on the island of Cyprus. The Greek goddess of spring, who we can identify because of the flowers on her dress, welcomes Venus onto land with a cloak. On the left of the painting is the wind god Zephyr and the breeze goddess Aura who have blown Venus to shore and who are shown as angels by Botticelli in this painting. The subject of the painting was inspired by the hymn to Aphrodite who was the Greek goddess of love. This hymn was written around 8th century before Christ in the style of Homer, the most famous ancient Greek writer and author of the Iliad, an epic poem about the Trojan War, which includes many of the famous Greek legends. This is one of many paintings from the Renaissance based on a classical myth. One of the key features of the Renaissance was that Italians were trying to capture the powerful glory days of the Romans, who had adopted many Greek gods and legends as their own. In the Renaissance, it was believed that the ancient people had much more wisdom and so that these myths must contain profound insights. Not only is the subject of the painting taken from Greek mythology, but so is Venus's pose. Which is very similar to the ancient Greek Medici Venus sculpture, also in the Uffizi, which we will take a look at later in this podcast tour. In both this painting and the sculpture, Venus has her right arm across her chest and her left hand covering her pubic area. The paint used here is called tempera, which is color mixed with diluted egg yolk. This is thinly applied to the painting, giving it a beautiful, almost translucent appearance. Tempera was the most popular medium before oil paint became widespread in the 1500s. Unfortunately, over time, the blues of the sea and the sky in this painting have lost their brightness. Similarly, and because of exposure to light, the leaves of the trees in the background have got much darker over time. It is believed that a member of the Medici family commissioned this painting, possibly for his country villa. The Medici family ruled Florence throughout the Renaissance period. The family made its huge wealth as wool merchants and bankers. Because of their money, the Medici were able to commission lots of art and, as a result, they had a major influence on the Italian Renaissance. Botticelli was the favourite painter of the Medici circle, which included writers, scholars, poets and art lovers. It is likely that whoever commissioned this painting, or one of his educated friends, told Botticelli how the ancient Greeks had represented Venus rising from the sea amidst a shower of flowers. Notice how Botticelli shows barely any perspective in the painting. Perspective is when artists show that objects or people are in the distance through for example painting them smaller, less detailed and in lighter colours. Most Renaissance painters were keen to show how clever they were at perspective but not Botticelli. Also look at the waves, they're almost childlike in the way they're shown in this painting. The bulrushes right at the front in the bottom left corner of the painting are also unrealistic. These freshwater plants don't belong in a scene set by the sea. This painting of the birth to Venus also shows that Botticelli, unlike other Renaissance artists such as Michelangelo, was uninterested in painting lifelike figures. We will talk more about Michelangelo and his interest in the human body when we look at a painting of his later in the tour. In The Birth of Venus, the proportions of Botticelli's figures are not realistic, nor does he show their muscle or how gravity places their body on the ground. For example, neither the proportions nor the poses of the wind gods make sense, and the goddess of spring, who is supposed to be on solid ground, looks like she is floating. In addition, whilst Venus is very beautiful... If you look closely you can see that she has an unnaturally long neck, a very small head, her long body is out of proportion and her left shoulder is falling away far too steeply and looks rather odd. Look at Venus's posture too, it just doesn't make sense. If you were to try and stand like Venus you would not be able to balance and you would fall over. It seems then that to Botticelli the beautiful outline of Venus's figure is much more important than showing her as a realistic three-dimensional person. Can you see that despite the clear blue sky of a sunny day, none of the figures in the painting cast a shadow on the ground? Nobody really knows what this painting means, but perhaps there is a clue in that the figures seem to be in an imaginary world rather than in reality. All of the figures have a solemn expression, so surely the painting must have a serious meaning. Perhaps there is also a clue in the pose of the goddess of spring, which is similar to the way most artists at the time represented St John the Baptist when he is baptising Christ. You can see this in the painting of the baptism of Christ by Verrocchio and Leonardo, which is also in the Uffizi and which you may wish to look up for later. Perhaps, then, there is a solemn religious meaning to this painting, with Venus representing the Virgin Mary. Some believe that this painting shows God's love through Venus, who could also be Mary. Others, however, believe that the painting was made to commemorate a wedding and shows the virtues of a beautiful and modest bride. We will never know the meaning behind the painting for definite, but it is one of the most famous artworks in the world and has influenced many artists, including Leonardo da Vinci, who may have been inspired by it when painting the Mona Lisa's mysterious smile. Now, we will move on to Botticelli's La Primavera, which is also in halls 10 to 14. Pause the audio until you are standing in front of the painting and then restart. You should now be standing in front of La Primavera, which Botticelli painted a few years before the birth of Venus in around 1480. La Primavera is Italian for spring. The artwork shows nine figures from classic mythology and the reasons that Botticelli shows them all together in one painting has been much debated. Do you remember how Botticelli painted the figures in his Birth of Venus without any concern for realistic proportion or gravity? Can you also see that he has done the same in this painting? Jonathan Jones, a British art critic, wrote that Botticelli's Primavera was one of the first large-scale European paintings to tell a story that was not Christian. We shall now explore the evidence for this. Let's start by identifying the figures. It is believed that this painting should be read from right to left. Furthest to the right is Zephyrus, god of the west wind, who embraces Cloris, a nymph. A nymph in Greek mythology is a lower status female goddess compared to Venus, for example, who is a high ranking goddess. There are many nymphs in Greek myths and they are associated with fertile growing things such as trees. Nymphs were not immortal but lived for a very long time and were generally very agreeable and kind towards men. Hence the associations we have today with the word nymphomaniac. The painting shows the moment in the Greek legend when Zephyrus abducts Chloris before marrying her and transforming her into Flora, the goddess of flowers. The third figure from the right, therefore, is Flora, right after she has been transformed from nymph to goddess. In the centre of the painting is Venus, the goddess of love. She is slightly set back from the other figures, very beautiful and modestly dressed. The gaps in the trees behind Venus form a kind of an arch that draws your eye towards her beautiful face as you look at the painting. Above Venus is Cupid, the god of love, who is shooting his famous arrow. To the left of Venus, the three graces dance. These are the three daughters of Zeus, who is the king of all the Greek gods. Each of the graces represents an ideal characteristic of women, joy, elegance and beauty. These characters often appear in paintings alongside Venus. Lastly, on the far left is Mercury, the messenger of the gods, who he recognised because of his helmet and winged sandals. The figures are set against trees and vegetation, which have got darker over time because of the ageing process of the colour. However, if you look closely, you can see an abundance of different types of plants and flowers throughout the painting. There are, in fact, over 500 different plants, flowers and fruits, with at least 138 species having been identified. It's believed that Botticelli used something called an herbarium, which is a collection of dried plants, to make sure that he painted all of these accurately. The orange trees in the background also give us a clue as to who commissioned the painting, which is not known for definite because there are limited records of when and where the painting was first seen. Orange trees were known as Mala Medice in the Renaissance. And, because of their similar name, this was the Medici family emblem. It is likely, then, that a member of the Medici family commissioned this painting. The meaning of the painting remains a mystery. Figuring it out is not helped by the fact that it is very unclear how all of the figures relate to each other in this one scene. Both Venus and Flora look outwards towards the viewer, Chloris and Zephyrus look at each other. Cupid is blindfolded and the middle grace looks at Mercury. Mercury has his back to all the figures and looks up to the clouds, which he prods with his stick. Nobody really knows why all of the characters look in these different directions. Some people have said that, as with the birth of Venus, the central figure alludes to the Virgin Mary. They say this because the sky through the trees behind her seems to form a halo. Also, with her swollen belly, perhaps she is pregnant with Jesus. Venus is also making the sign with her hand that Mary made at the Annunciation when Angel Gabriel told her she was going to give birth to Christ. We will see this sign when we look at a painting by Leonardo called The Annunciation later on in this podcast tour. Most often, however, people have thought that the painting represents the fertility of the world through showing spring, woman and love. In this interpretation, Mercury would be playing his other role as the god of the month of May. And perhaps he is using his stick to prod away the final clouds of winter so that spring can arrive. Maybe, however, the painting represents all of these things. Spring, fertility and religion. But it's actually about transformations. In La Primavera, winter transforms to spring. Chloris transforms to flora. And Venus transforms to a pregnant Mary. <laughs> The tour will now leave the rooms with the Botticelli paintings as we move to Leonardo da Vinci's The Annunciation, which you can find in Hall 15. Now pause this podcast and restart it when you're standing in front of the painting by Leonardo. You should now be standing in front of The Annunciation, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in 1472. This is the earliest of the paintings we will look at in this podcast tour. It is generally believed that this is one of Leonardo's earliest paintings, made when he was around 20 years old and still working as an apprentice in the studio of a famous artist and sculptor called Andrea del Verrocchio. Of course, Leonardo went on to become one of the most celebrated artists of all time, But as an apprentice, he would have lived with his master, running errands for the family and mixing colours for his boss. Luckily for Leonardo, working for such a famous artist meant that he could learn about foundry work, which is melting metals and creating sculptures by pouring molten metal into moulds, as well as how to prepare pictures and statues from nudes and draped models. He would also have studied plants and unusual animals and understood how to create perspective and use colour. Many gifted artists were trained in Verrocchio's studio, but Leonardo was more than talented. He was a genius and I will talk a bit more about that in a moment. This is a painting of the Annunciation which is when the angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary to tell her she was going to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. Mary looks up from the book she is reading and responds to Gabriel's blessing by raising her hand. The white lily held by angel Gabriel is a symbol of Mary's purity or her virginity and her radiant soul. There is another reference to Mary's purity in the setting of the scene, which is a walled garden in front of the Renaissance palace. In the paintings of scenes from the Bible, a walled garden, or Hortus conclusus as it's called in Latin, often represents purity. This is because the walls to the garden suggest impenetrability and so refer to Mary's virginity. The traditional religious theme has been shown by Leonardo in an earthly, natural setting. Real life is emphasised by the shadow of the angel on the grass. Notice also the plants and flowers in the garden and Gabriel's wings based on a bird of prey. These give you some indication about Leonardo's future obsessions and attention to detail. But the artist didn't just develop an interest in drawing plants and birds, he wanted to know how plants grew and how birds flew, as well as how waves and currents of water worked and what made sound. We know about Leonardo's huge range of interests and unbelievable productivity because of the many sketches and notebooks his pupils and admirers saved. In these, there are thousands of pages covered with sketches, writings, inventions and notes of books that he read. These pages, for example, include drawings of and notes of babies growing in the womb and inventions for helicopter-like flying machines. Leonardo's drive to find out how things work even extended to his dissection of over 30 corpses to understand the workings of the human body. Whereas Botticelli used flowing hair and garments to indicate movement in his paintings, Leonardo went a step further to show real life by inventing a technique called sfumato. This involved blurring the lines around figures and facial features and using mellow colours so that the outlines are not very defined. Meaning that, rather than seeming stiff and lifeless, figures and features show movement and expression. If you look closer, you will see that the lines and colours around eyes and mouth of Leonardo's figures are deliberately indistinct and merge into soft shadow. This makes the characters' expressions mysterious, making you wonder how they are feeling and what they are thinking. The painting has been criticised for its inaccuracies. For example, you might notice that the Virgin is out of proportion. Her fingers are too long, as is her right arm. But was this an accident? Leonardo's genius is demonstrated by the fact that, at the age of 30, he went to work as a military engineer for the Duke of Milan, with his work as a painter, sculptor and architect only secondary to his engineering and his inventions. It is believed, therefore, that Leonardo was far too clever to make such a mistake and that Mary's proportions were deliberate, as the painting was made to be seen from below and from the right-hand side, perhaps because it was to be hung over a side altar in a church. The next artwork we will look at is a sculpture called the Medici Venus, which is in Hall Number 18. Walk to that now, pause this audio, and restart it when you're standing in front of the statue of the Medici Venus. So I hope that you're now standing in front of the Medici Venus which dates from the period between the late 2nd century before Christ to the early 1st century before Christ. You will recognise the sculpture's pose from when we looked at Botticelli's birth of Venus. This is the Roman goddess of love, beauty, sex, fertility, prosperity and desire. At the bottom of the sculpture is the signature of the person who made Venus, Cleomenes, son of Apollodorus, a sculptor who was working in Athens in Greece during the first century before Christ. It is very rare for the sculptors of ancient statues to be known, but this has meant that we have an accurate date for when Venus was made. In Greek mythology, that is before the Romans, Venus was known as Aphrodite. The Romans kept many of the gods, goddesses and legends of ancient Greece, but changed some of their names and details. After the demise of the ancient Greek empire, the Romans plundered Greek cities and stole many artefacts, bringing them back to Italy. This is very likely how Venus ended up in Rome. According to one Renaissance artist... Venus was found in the mid-1500s in Rome, inside the vineyard of a bishop. Statues of Venus would often be placed by Romans outdoors and in gardens, as they considered her the goddess of gardens as well as the goddess of love. In 1575, Venus was sold to a member of the Medici family, who kept her as part of a collection of ancient sculpture at his villa in Rome. She stayed there for over a hundred years, but after that was sent to Florence by Pope Innocent XI, a very religious man who decided that the statue was far too indecent to stay in Rome. The Pope's attitude towards this statue, her pose and the companions at her feet, hint at why the Romans were so fond of sculptures of Venus. The dolphin at Venus's feet implies that she just like in Botticelli's painting had just emerged from the sea. She seems to be surprised to have been caught at that moment and is modestly hiding her breasts and pubic area. Also at her feet and riding the dolphin is Cupid, Venus's son who she conceived with Mars the god of war. It is no coincidence that Cupid is the god of desire, erotic love, attraction and affection. life sized statues of a naked Venus were considered to be very attractive to men in ancient times. In those ancient times, Venus would have been much more colourful and adorned than you see her now. Her ears were pierced for earrings and recent tests have shown traces of original colour including gold on the top of the hair, an orangey red on her lips and blue on the base. Venus was so famous and desirable that in 1802, following his invasion of Italy, Napoleon ordered that she be transported to Paris. She was there for 14 years and then relocated back to Florence, an icon of Western art The Medici Venus has been copied by artists many times over the centuries. Next, we will look at a painting by a German painter called Albrecht Dürer. The painting is called The Adoration of the Magi, and you should find this in Hall 20, but you may need to ask if you can't find it there. Pause the podcast now and restart it when you're standing in front of The Adoration of the Magi by Albrecht Dürer. You should now be standing in front of The Adoration of the Magi, painted by Albrecht Dürer in around 1504. This painting shows the famous scene from the Christmas nativity story, when the three kings visit the newborn Christ, bringing gifts of gold, incense and myrrh. Apart from the ancient Greek sculpture of Venus, this is the only non-Italian artist included on this podcast tour. Albrecht Dürer was a painter, printmaker and writer and is regarded as the greatest German Renaissance artist. This painting is interesting for many reasons. One of which is that it combines elements of what is typical of Italian Renaissance art with what we see a lot of in Northern European Renaissance art. Dürer's painting shows his desire to represent figures and animals as accurately and realistically as possible. This was typical of Italian Renaissance painters. We saw this with Leonardo and we will talk more about it when we look at the work of michelangelo shortly durer was very interested in italian art nuremberg where he grew up was a thriving center for trade with italy due to the city's location in central southeast germany so the young durer would have seen prints coins medals and engraved gems from northern italy this inspired the artist to travel to italy and so, by the time he made this painting, he had visited twice. Jura was therefore familiar with Leonardo as well as with ancient art. There is a lot of elegance and detail in this painting, in the luscious silk and brocade fabrics, the feathers and furs, the rubies and pearls, and the gold goblets which were made by goldsmiths in Nuremberg, showing the influence of Jura's home country. Also, notice the detail of the cow and the donkey in the stable. Dürer is famous for his paintings and prints of animals, such as his well-known print of a rhinoceros that he made from his imagination, but which is surprisingly accurate for someone who had never seen such an animal. If you look closely, you'll see other animals and insects, as well as plants and flowers stuffed into the crevices of rocks and stonework. Again, Giro is well known for botanical drawing and painting, and we saw earlier that this is something that Italian artists, for example Botticelli and Leonardo, were also interested in. In addition to the gold items, the background to the scene shows Jura's Northern European roots and its influence on his art. In the immediate background to the scene, there is a dilapidated architecture of broken arches and cobbled together wooden structures. In the distance, a lighter coloured view of a hilltop town. This almost looks like a distant fairy tale, especially with the added detail of the knights on horses in the middle ground. This combination of ruined architecture surrounding a scene with a fairy tale like landscape in the distance are typical of Northern Renaissance paintings by Dutch and German artists. The figures in Jura's paintings are also interesting. It is believed that the king with the long hair in the centre of the painting is a self portrait of the artist. The position of the Black King has also been noted as significant by some art historians. A Black King started being included in European paintings of the Adoration of the Magi in the 1300s. Many paintings, however, showed the Black King as the furthest distant of the three from Baby Christ. Here, the Black King dominates most of the whole of the right side of the painting – He is also set apart from the other figures who are composed in a pyramid shape on the left and he's on the outside of the architectural setting that the group is in. Dürer seems to be singling out the Black King. Do you agree with some art historians that he is celebrating the Black King in this painting and maybe even the diversity of Renaissance Italy? We are now nearly finished with our podcast tour of the second floor of the Uffizi Gallery, but we have one more painting to look at here. This is in Hall 35 and is by Michelangelo. The painting is called the Doni Tondo and is a large, round work of art. Pause this podcast now and restart it when you are standing in front of the painting by Michelangelo. You are now standing in front of the Doni Tondo painted by Michelangelo in 1505 and completed in 1506. Michelangelo is one of the most famous artists ever to have lived. He is probably best known for painting the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome. Living a long life until he was 90 he oversaw a complete change in the status of the artist from craftsman to celebrity. He was and still is thought of as a superhuman genius and he definitely believed the hype. As well as a painter he was a sculptor and an architect and he was known to have a violent temper. Michelangelo's signature style and obsession with the human body is clear in this painting. The Holy Family, St Joseph, the Virgin Mary and baby Jesus are very realistic and three-dimensional, especially when you think back to Botticelli's birth of Venus and compare them to the otherworldly figures in that painting. They have very expressive faces and their postures show they are mid-movement. You can clearly see the muscles in Mary's arms as she reaches towards Christ and the roles of the baby's chubby body. Michelangelo was driven to understand how the human body worked and how the sinews and muscles made it move. He was single-minded in conducting his own research into human anatomy, dissecting bodies and drawing many life models. Mary's androgynous appearance may be explained by the fact that Michelangelo had to use male models to draw and paint female figures. The painting also shows how well Michelangelo knew ancient Greek and Roman sculpture. At the age of thirteen, he was apprenticed for three years to a famous artist called Ghirlandaio. It is said that Michelangelo didn't enjoy the superficial art he learned with Ghirlandaio and he went out to study the great masters of the past as well as the Greek and Roman sculpture he could see in the Medici collection at the time. A very famous ancient sculpture called the Laocoon had been unearthed in Rome around the time of this painting. It was believed that Michelangelo was present when this sculpture was dug up the sculpture, around which there is lots of debate as to whether it is ancient Greek or Roman, is now displayed in the Vatican Museum in Rome. The Laocoön sculpture is based on the Greek myth about a Trojan priest and his two sons who were crushed to death by two huge sea serpents. The three figures in the sculpture are twisted as they try to escape from the snakes curled around them. You can see from the Holy Family's coiled figures that Michelangelo was influenced by the twisted postures of the Laocoon. In addition, one of the figures in the background, just behind and to the right of St. Joseph, is an almost exact copy of one of the figures in the Laocoon sculpture. Michelangelo was also not afraid to borrow ideas from contemporary artists and incorporate them into his own work. It is believed that the placing of the main figures in a pyramid shape within the painting was an idea that he took from a Leonardo painting of the Virgin Mary, Jesus and Saint Anne. By the time he was 30, Michelangelo was considered as much as an artistic genius as Leonardo, who was the older artist of the two. The two artists became great rivals with the city of Florence putting them in competition with each other by commissioning them to paint an episode from Florentine history on the walls of the council chamber. However, these were never completed, as both artists were lured by projects in other cities. Similarly, it's thought that the Medici Madonna, a painting by the artist Luca Signorelli, which is also in the Uffizi Gallery, Inspired Michelangelo to make a round painting with Mary sitting on the ground and with nude male figures in the background. You may want to look at the painting by Signorelli after finishing this podcast tour. The Doni Tondo was, in fact, Michelangelo's first painting and the only finished panel painting of his to survive. It was probably commissioned by a Florentine banker called Agnolo Doni to celebrate his marriage to Maddalena Struzzi, the daughter of a powerful Tuscan family. Doni was extremely wealthy and so he was able to celebrate his marriage and the birth of his first child with commissions from the best artists of the period. The carved wooden frame is original and includes carvings of crescent moons, stars, vegetation and lion's heads. It's believed that these symbols refer to the Doni and the Strozzi families and were taken from the two families' coats of arms. The word tondo comes from the Italian word rotondo, which translates in English as round. This format was particularly popular in Renaissance times for religious paintings to be hung in homes. Mary is clothed in vibrant colours with much use of expensive blue pigment to ensure that she stands out as the most important character of the painting. No one is sure of the purpose of the painting. It may have been intended for devotion by the household So that means it would have been looked at whilst the family were praying and contemplating God. It's not clear either why there are young male nude figures in the background to this painting, but it has been said that these may represent pagan people, that is those who have still not converted to Christianity, which is why they are shown separately and behind a wall. Others have said that the painting shows the importance of family, what a good family looks like and what Doni's hoped-for family should look like. We shall never know the painting's true meaning. So we have now come to the end of the podcast tour of the second floor of the Uffizi Gallery and we will begin again on the first floor where we will start in Hall 66 in front of a painting by Raffaello Santi otherwise known as Raphael. Before you make your way to the first floor, you may want to have a look at some of the other works of art on display on the second floor and see if you can find some of the things that you've learned about so far in this podcast. For example, can you find other paintings where it is clear that the artist is interested in showing off their knowledge of muscles, where their postures are realistic and would work in real life? and where the figures look like there is weight in their limbs and gravity is at work to pin them down to the ground. Can you also find paintings where the artist is not interested in showing realistic figures? Why do you think that might be? Are there other examples where figures have been arranged into a triangular composition? You could also look for paintings or sculptures of Venus or other Greek gods and goddesses. And make sure you notice the backgrounds of paintings. Are there other figures, landscapes or buildings? Why do you think these backgrounds have been included? Notice also the detail of the paintings. Animals, plants, insects. Are there lots of examples of different species? Do you think these are real or invented? Pause the podcast now. And restart it again on the first floor in Hall 66 in front of Raphael's Madonna of the Goldfinch. You should now be standing in front of the Madonna of the Goldfinch painted by Raphael in 1506. Raphael was a completely different type of person to the moody, solitary Michelangelo. He was a popular outgoing personality. During his lifetime Raphael was equally famous as Michelangelo but today he is mainly only talked about by art historians. Perhaps this is only because he was not the tragic hero like Michelangelo. Raphael didn't live very long, dying when he was just 37 but he painted many many works during his short life and at the time of his death he had a huge studio of more than 50 trainees, which was more than any other artist at the time. As a result of his fame, Raphael had one of the largest funeral ceremonies of the Renaissance, which concluded with a funeral mass at the Vatican. Although not as innovative as Michelangelo and Leonardo, His style is known as the epitome of the High Renaissance, which emphasised the perfect and ideal beauty that was also found in ancient sculpture such as the Medici Venus. In this painting, yet again, you can see the triangular composition of the figures that we saw in the Michelangelo painting earlier, which had, in turn, been influenced by Leonardo. Renaissance artists realised that using this composition meant that the viewer's eye is drawn up to the point of the triangle, in this case, Mary's beautiful face. Raphael arrived in Florence at the age of 21 and he must have been fascinated by what was going on in the Florentine art world. Leonardo had just returned to the city from Milan and was astonishing the public with his Mona Lisa painting, which is now in the Louvre in Paris. Michelangelo had returned to Florence from Rome and had just completed his David sculpture, which you can now see in Florence's Galleria Accademia. You can see the influence of both artists in this painting by Raphael. He uses the technique developed by Leonardo called sfumato, which we discussed earlier. Like Leonardo, Raphael blurs the contours of the features, for example of Mary's face, so that there are no harsh outlines and a softness to the appearance. Like Michelangelo, Raphael is concerned with making his figures look realistic, three-dimensional and anatomically correct. In fact, the two artists became each other's biggest rivals. Whilst Michelangelo was working on the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome, Raphael was painting other rooms within the Vatican. The Madonna of the Goldfinch was one of several Madonnas painted by Raphael at the time. They shared similar characteristics, including a Madonna clothed in red and blue. Red signifies the blood of Christ from the Passion, which is the name given to his suffering when he was crucified. Blue is always associated with the Virgin Mary, and you saw her robed in blue in Michelangelo's painting earlier. The blue pigment was made from a stone called lapis lazuli. Because lapis lazuli is only found in Afghanistan, it is even more expensive than gold. The patron who is the person who commissioned the painting, was expected to pay for any gold or lapis lazuli used. The more they paid for, the more they showed their devotion to the Virgin Mary. The baby St John the Baptist is shown alongside Jesus and the Virgin Mary in this painting. St John the Baptist later baptised Christ and is recognisable in this painting because he is robed with camel skin The Bible's New Testament said, Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist as an expression of remorse for his sins. To this day, some Christians wear uncomfortable clothes, more usually sackcloth than camel hair, to repent for their sins. The Virgin's loving but serious expression almost seems to anticipate the pain of Christ's passion and crucifixion at the end of his life. The goldfinch in the painting also represents Christ's crucifixion, because legend has it that the bird got its red spot when Jesus was nailed to the cross to die. The goldfinch flew down to take a thorn from his crown and was marked by a drop of blood. The book in Mary's hand has the words sedis sapientia which translates as the throne of wisdom. This term is usually used to describe images in which Mary is seated on a throne with Jesus on her lap but in this case the words imply that Mary is sitting on a natural throne the rock. The painting was commissioned to celebrate the wedding of a wealthy Florentine merchant. Sadly, however, some years later, the couple's home was destroyed in an earthquake and the painting was broken into 17 pieces. It was subsequently repaired and restored, but only in 2002 was the painting given the attention that it justifies, when a six-year restoration period began. During this time, years of grime that had degraded the painting's colour was removed and the damage done by the earthquake was finally fixed. Now, nearly 500 years after it was painted, Raphael's work shines through once more. Next, we will go to Hall 83, where you will find Titian's painting, The Venus of Urbino. Pause this podcast now and restart it when you're standing in front of this painting by Titian. You are now standing in front of the Venus of Urbino by Tiziano Vecellio, who is also known as Titian, and who painted this in around 1538. This is yet another representation of Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, and the sexiest one we have seen yet. Venus stares straight back at you as you look at the painting, almost daring you to admire her naked body. She holds a bunch of roses, which, like her, symbolises love, beauty and sensuality. Look at how beautifully Titian has painted Venus's soft, smooth skin, which heightens the eroticism. Titian was sent to Venice to trade as an artist at around the age of 10. As an established artist, Titian became the most sought after portrait painter of the rich, of members of the church, and of the aristocracy. He died of the plague at around the age of 90. Titian is thought of by many as the greatest painter, compared to Leonardo, who was known as the greatest inventor, Michelangelo, who drew brilliantly and had a fascinating personality and Raphael, who was the most versatile, attractive and popular man. There are two theories behind why this painting was made, one of which is that it is a portrait of an upper-class prostitute. As with Botticelli's Birth of Venus, the pose of this figure is taken from the ancient Greek statues of Venus. However, the placement of Venus's hand is much more sensual than we saw in those earlier artworks, and some people have even suggested that she is pleasuring herself. This may, however, indicate the alternative interpretation of the painting, that, rather than being a portrait of a prostitute, it was made to celebrate its owner's wedding. The most common narrative is that the painting was commissioned by the Duke of Urbino, who hired Titian to create the work as a gift to his wife, Giulia da Varano. Some believe that the painting was hung in their private chambers to give the young bride instruction on the art of intimacy. It may also have represented the couple's hope for children, as it was believed at the time that a female orgasm was necessary for conception to take place. There are other reasons to believe that this painting was made to celebrate a wedding. In the background are made rummages through marriage chests, which were called cassone where the clothes for the wedding are kept. This suggests that the young woman posing as Venus is a bride about to be dressed to take part in Il Tocamano, which translates in English as the hand-touching and which was the Venetian marriage ritual. The other maid has a sumptuous gold dress over her shoulder, which is believed to be a wedding dress. The dog in the painting is likely to represent the desire for a faithful marriage, as dogs are often used to symbolise fidelity in art. Furthermore, the plant on the window ledge at the back of the painting is myrtle, another symbol of love, affection and purity. Giulia de Verano was only 10 years old when she married the Duke of Urbino. It has been suggested that as the bride was too young to pose for the painting, the Duke's mother posed as Venus instead. It seems rather odd to have the groom's mother pose as his bride-to-be in this way but people have come to this conclusion because the same dog features in Titian's portrait of the Duke's mother Eleonora Gonzaga which you can also see in the Uffizi. You may want to look for this painting after the end of the podcast. We are now going to go to hall 90 where you will find all of the last three paintings in this podcast tour. The first we will look at is Caravaggio's Medusa. So don't forget to pause this podcast now, restarting it when you're standing in front of the Medusa, a round painting by Caravaggio. So you are now looking at the Medusa painted by Caravaggio in 1597, 125 years after the earliest painting we have looked at Leonardo's Annunciation, which we saw earlier on the second floor. We have now moved away from the High Renaissance to a different period of art called the Baroque. You will notice how different the art is in this period, full of movement, expression, light and shade, and plenty of drama. Caravaggio made this painting at the beginning of the Baroque period the height of which was the 1600s. This artist wanted to break away from the ideal beauty that we saw in the Renaissance for example in depictions of Venus and the Virgin Mary. Caravaggio wanted to paint the truth whether it was beautiful or ugly. The artist had a lot of life experience from which to draw the truth Orphaned at 11, he was a controversial figure with a reputation for violence. Towards the end of his life, he killed a man in a brawl and fled Rome shortly afterwards. Unusually for the time, Caravaggio painted directly onto the canvas from live models, who were generally ordinary people, or sometimes beggars and criminals that he found on the street. This came as a shock to the average Italian, who didn't want to see people like this in their paintings. They wanted beautiful, idealised figures. Some believed that Caravaggio was mainly out to shock the public and he was accused of having no respect for any kind of beauty or tradition. In reality, Caravaggio was far too busy and serious about his art to spend time trying to cause a sensation. He wanted to throw away the conventions and think about art afresh. The subject of the painting is taken from Greek mythology. Medusa was a mortal rather than a goddess and a priestess to Athena, the goddess of wisdom and battle. Athena required that all her priestesses were virgins and that they dedicate their lives to her. However, Medusa was seduced, or some say possibly raped, by the sea god Poseidon. Athena punished Medusa for this crime by turning her into a gorgon with hair made of snakes and the terrifying ability to turn to stone anyone who looked into her eyes. Caravaggio's painting shows the exact moment in Medusa's story that she was killed by Perseus who had been challenged to perform this murder by a powerful king. The king wanted to be with Perseus's wife and believed that, by sending Perseus away to kill Medusa, he would be gone for a very long time and maybe be turned into stone, never to return. Cleverly, however, Perseus used a mirrored shield so that he could see Medusa's reflection and kill her without having to look into her eyes. The realness of his work is emphasised by Caravaggio's use of light and shade. The deep shadows emphasise the section of Medusa's face which is shown in glaring light, adding drama to her expression of horror, her screaming mouth, her furrowed brow and her shocked eyes. This is the terrifying moment that Medusa looks at her reflection in the shield and realises that her head is severed from her body and blood is pouring from her neck. The mirrored shield is important to this painting as it's actually Caravaggio's face that we see here. He replaces Medusa's face with his own reflection. This makes Caravaggio's female character take on an androgynous quality, but basing Medusa on his own face was mostly practical. Caravaggio often modelled for his own paintings. For this painting, it meant that the artist could explore the contorted facial expressions of horror in front of the mirror before deciding which to use for his representation of Medusa. Determined to represent everything as true to life as possible, Caravaggio painted Medusa's hair from water snakes found in the river Tiber in Rome. Caravaggio's amazing skill as a painter is also shown here by the way he uses the shadow of the head on the painting's background to make Medusa's head appear to be a three-dimensional object that pops out from the picture. The painting was given as a gift to a member of the Medici family by an Italian cardinal or high-ranking official in the Catholic Church who had commissioned it from Caravaggio. The Medici were keen on the theme of Medusa, as it symbolises wisdom. Many also believe that Medusa's image had the power to ward off evil influences or bad luck. Next, please find the painting of Bacchus by the same artist, Caravaggio. This painting should be nearby in the same hall as the Medusa. Pause the podcast until you are standing in front of Caravaggio's painting of Bacchus. So you should now be standing in front of Caravaggio's Bacchus, painted in around 1598. Caravaggio painted a number of half-portraits of young men like this one, such as the boy with a basket of fruit, which is in Rome, and the boy bitten by a lizard, which you can see in the National Gallery in London. In these paintings, Caravaggio combines portraits with still life. In this particular painting, he shows Bacchus, the Roman god of drunkenness and debauchery. Bacchus is usually shown as being drunk in paintings, and this one is no exception. However, artists usually paint the god partying and acting wildly. Caravaggio's drunk Bacchus, with his pink face and drowsy eyes, is, however, languid, serene and self-contained. The god seems to have a youthful face of a teenager on the muscular body of a young man, and there is something suggestive about the way he offers his glass of wine to the viewer and barely makes any effort to keep his body covered up with his shirt. Nobody knows for definite who commissioned this painting, but it may have been the same cardinal who commissioned Medusa. This particular cardinal commissioned around 40 paintings from Caravaggio, many depicting sexualised young men. Perhaps Bacchus represents the owner's preference for the finer things in life and wealth and excess. The cardinal was also known to throw dinner parties where young men would dress up as women. There has been a lot of discussion over the years about Caravaggio's sexuality. Some believe that one of his pupils, who was also his lover, was the model for this painting. Typically for Caravaggio, there is plenty of realness in this painting. It's believed that Caravaggio used a mirror of his own reflection to help him draw Bacchus holding the glass of wine. Bacchus has dirty fingernails, a grubby mattress shows under the sheet on the left of the painting and there is rotting fruit in the bowl. But this realness tells us something more about the painting. In art, a still life often symbolises mortality and the briefness of earthly life. Hence the rotting fruit. Everything and everyone gets older and eventually dies. You are now going to hear about the final artwork in this podcast tour, which is a painting by Artemisia Gentileschi called Judith Beheading Holophanes. The painting is in the same room that you are in now. Pause the podcast until you have found it. This is Judith Beheading Holophanes, painted by Artemisia Gentileschi in around 1620. We have seen lots of paintings of women in this podcast tour. But this is the only artwork actually made by a woman. This is because at the time women artists were extremely rare. They faced many obstacles in getting teaching on figure drawing and anatomy and therefore up until the mid-1850s women were pretty much restricted to painting portraits. This painting however was made by a woman called Artemisia the daughter of a famous painter, Orazio Gentileschi. You can see how this artist was a painter in the Baroque style, with her use of shadows and light, and the raw depiction of violence, blood and gore, as in Caravaggio's Medusa that we looked at earlier. The subject of the painting is a Bible story. The Assyrian king sent his general, Holofernes, to besiege the Jewish city of Bethulia, Judith, who lived in the city and was described as a beautiful young widow, decides to save her people by slaying Holophanes herself. She prays to God and then puts on her finest clothes to go and seduce the general. Holophanes is struck by Judith's beauty and invites her to a lavish banquet in his tent. After Holophanes has drunk enough wine to collapse on his bed, Judith cuts his head off with his own sword. This is a female version of the David and Goliath story, which is the subject of Michelangelo's sculpture of David at the Galleria Academia. In both of these stories, the underdog triumphs against a powerful man. In the biblical story, Judith is portrayed as combining a deeply religious character with strength and the so-called womanly virtue of beauty. Gentileschi's strong, powerful, determined Judith contrasts with the Judiths shown in Renaissance art in which she was depicted as a sweet and gentle Virgin Mary type figure. The painting shows a violent urgency and blood spurts everywhere as Judith gets to work and Holophanes grabs the maidservant girl's throat in desperation. Biblical heroines often feature in Gentileschi's work, and she used them to illustrate her turbulent life and her angry feelings towards men. The artist's mother had died when she was just 12. She was illiterate until her adulthood and faced systemic discrimination in becoming a painter. If that wasn't enough, Gentileschi also survived rape and endured a high-profile trial in which she stuck to her testimony while being tortured with thumbscrews. But, like Judith or David, she beat the odds against powerful forces establishing a painting studio in Naples with her daughter and receiving commissions from European aristocracy. The strong-armed Judith in the painting butchers Holophanes with a serious sense of purpose, giving the impression of determination and revenge that Gentileschi displayed in her own life. The realism and violence of the painting provoked strong reactions when it arrived in Florence and for this reason it was not allowed to be exhibited. In fact, only after her friend, the scientist Galileo Galilei, intervened, was Gentileschi paid for the painting, despite having made an agreement with the Medici family, who had commissioned it. But Gentileschi won in more ways than one. Having a highly successful career in an era dominated by men, travelling all over Europe and becoming the first woman to enter the Academy of Art and Design... In Florence. We have now come to the end of the art tour of the Uffizi and I hope you have enjoyed it and learned something new about Renaissance and Baroque painting and ancient Greek sculpture. If you have time before leaving the gallery you could explore some of the rest of the huge collection of artworks looking for paintings for example with lots of blue lapis lazuli remembering that the more that was used, the richer the person who commissioned the art. Are there other paintings showing St John the Baptist in his camel hair? Also, look for paintings of dramatic action. Are these Baroque paintings? How is the tension represented through light and shade and the emotion conveyed through facial expressions? Can you find any paintings where there are still lives? Do you think these paintings are commenting on the brevity of youth and life on earth? Can you find more paintings of biblical tales and Greek myths? Or any other pictures of strong women? What do you think their story is? I do hope you've enjoyed this podcast tour of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence please do look out for other podcast tours of european museums galleries and buildings in the painting stories and architecture stories podcast series in the meantime i wish you a wonderful time in beautiful florence